you would open your word or turn with me in your notes, we've got John chapter 15. We're going to dig a little farther into those passages. Just quickly give you a little bit of a, a heading on where we are. This probably needs to be a book rather than a series of messages. So it, it's, I don't want it to be more complicated than it is, but when you talk about the mission of the church, um, I don't want to say I I laugh, but part of me does laugh when churches attempt to boil the mission of the church down to a clever statement and all that God had in mind for the church to be and its reasons gets put into some slogan that goes on a bumper sticker. That's a little tough. We've tried, you know, growing together for the glory of God. It's an attempt, but it's a bigger subject than that. And, And you do need to fill in some of the blanks. So I've tried to break this series down into three main headlines that'll have some subheadings in it. The first we've visited in the last couple of weeks, the aim of discipleship, the aim of discipleship being the glory of God and our bearing fruit through growing as the Holy Spirit enables us to grow. That's the aim. What are we doing? What are we aiming at as individual Christians and as a local church? We're aiming at ultimately the glory of God in every circumstance, every moment, every situation. Listen, this comes to bear on our lives in powerful ways. It will come to bear on your life in the moment when an easier route becomes available for whatever you're doing in your life. A shortcut. Maybe a shortcut to fixing the marital problems that you're having or the relational struggles that you're having. There will always be shortcuts. And yet the option for us is one. What will bring glory to God? Everything answers to that. There's no bigger priority. And then God is up to something. He has involved himself in our lives for a purpose. And he says it over and over again in this passage. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and you would bear fruit. There's the agenda of God. God has an interest in the life that he is giving us, producing fruit through us into this world. So what is discipleship's aim? Well, ultimately, I think those would be two things that characterize discipleship's aim. But the next thing that has to be addressed is what are the activities of discipleship? Aim is about what God desires and what he does to accomplish that. Activity has a lot to do with what you and I do to engage this mission. And we're going to unpack, we won't unpack all seven of these, but But we're going to unpack the idea that God has particular activity for his people. And his church needs to pay attention to that. And you'll see some of those things listed uh, on the the screen there. And then eventually we will get to the aroma of discipleship. What it smells like to be around Christians and to be gathered in a place where the spirit of God is hovering and he's at work. And he's producing something among us. So that's a big feel for where we're going. Uh, Today let's go back to our plant-based discipleship. Who knew how ahead of time the Bible was, right? And if somebody plant-based things, this is plant-based discipleship, in case you haven't picked up on that, from John 15. Let's read part of this, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch 
cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, well, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be be full. All right, notice something in this passage, and I'm, I'm, I'm really pausing with the concept, and I'm not jumping into the particulars of abiding. I'm just pausing to give greater value to the fact that this passage is filled with conditions that call upon those reading it to pay attention to and to do something. All right, so the Bible has God as its main character and is always describing the wonder, the glory, the beauty, the triumph, the activities of God. But the Bible is not silent when it speaks to us. It calls us to do things. It links our activity to outcomes, as this passage does, right? So I wrote in your outline, there are outcomes that are dependent on certain inputs in this passage. There are ifs in this passage. If this, then that. There are unlesses in this passage. Unless this, not that. There are cannots in this passage. If you don't do this, you cannot do this. So apparently, what you and I do in response to all that God is and all that God has done, which is what, you know, as a church, we are God-centered. So we're not getting a promotion today. We're not going to displace God. We're not going to make God answer to us. We're not going to make our activity ultimate. However, we are going to let the Bible sound exactly like it sounds. It is actually saying Christians are doing something with their life. And it's actually saying what you're doing matters. And if you don't do it, there's going to be an issue. Welcome to mystery. And I hope you you can get comfortable with mystery because the Bible doesn't apologize for a second that God is ultimate, God is sovereign, God is totally in control, God is not compromised for a second, God is not standing in line waiting for you and I so that his kingdom can exist, can be fruitful. And yet then he turns around and says, hey, by the way, in that fruitful category, you got some stuff to do here. So can, can you just join me in this? Can we all just be humble enough to recognize this is, this is above our pay grade? And so, you know, kind of like when you were a kid and your parents didn't always explain to you why you needed to do that. If they told you to do it, you just needed to do it because you just, you just weren't old enough to understand why that matters. And this passage is like that. 
there's some stuff here that I'm just not old enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not spiritually nuanced enough to get why this matters. It just needs to matter, period. And we'll try and keep it out of the weeds. Richard Phillips in his commentary on John said, the third element of the parable presents believers responsibility. In order to bear fruit as living branches, Christians are commanded to abide in Christ. So let me talk today about fruitful discipleship. Let me use this word because it kind of bugs us. Requires abiding and obeying. All right, that will be undeniable from this passage and others, but it is a little bit uncomfortable. I'm using the word intentionally. Fruitful discipleship requires abiding and obeying. All right, so a couple of thoughts here when you stare into this passage. There's a condition that Jesus highlights. It's a featured condition in this passage, and it is centered around that word abiding. If you abide, if you abide and my words abide in you. Right? So that, that word abiding it is a word about remaining. It is a word about continuing. It is a word about dwelling. And in this vine uh, illustration, there is this, there is this exchange taking place between the branch and the vine. And though this is not clear in, in this passage, and so it could be an imposition from commentators, is there a reference here to the fact that there is illustrations in the scriptures that, you know, we are, we are wild branches that have been grafted into the vine. So there's a grafting that's, that could be being described here. And in a grafting process, if you were the vine dresser, you would actually take these Gentiles, these foreigners, these unbelievers, and you would go out and find them. And you would graft them in by, by cutting the vine and inserting the branch and then wrapping that up in such a way and then over time, if you've ever done anything like this, with you guys who work hard you know, with plants well, um, sometimes that takes and sometimes it doesn't. And the way you can tell whether it took or not is when the leaves start to dry up and shrivel up and no fruit is born, you have a branch that doesn't bear fruit. So by contrast, these are branches bearing fruit. And Jesus is saying that fruit bearing is connected to you abiding, you dwelling, you remaining in, you being in contact with, you having a real vital living exchange with Jesus in your life. Can we all sign on for this? In this world, with our broken bodies, with our temptations to sin, fruit bearing is not going to be the easiest thing you're going to do in your life. And Jesus points that out. He said, if you're going to abide, if you're going to bear fruit, it's going to take abiding in me. It's going to take nearness with me. It's going to take intimacy with me. You're going to have to have a real connection and relationship with Jesus. You, you, you can't have some casual, distant, you know, sort of broken, kind of touches like a sparking wire that every once in a while there's a little jolt. There's a little, oh, there's a little jolt. Look at that. Look, oh, look at what Jesus did. And then, then there's this, this distance, you know, this Christmas and Easter kind of approach to Jesus. This man upstairs reference to him. I don't know if I'm stepping on anybody's toes, but can I just gut you of, of ever referring to God as the man upstairs? Um, what that advertises is, is you have no idea who you're talking about. Right, it's a colloquial element. Yeah, man, put a hey, Keith, put a word in for me for the big man, the man upstairs. You know, um, no, I don't know. 
um, the, the guy up there that you're trying to refer to, if you could just taste and see for a second, you'd wet your pants first and then you'd fall down and you'd cry out to God for mercy and you'd be totally blown away and amazed that he loves you the way he does. Uh, that guy, that's who you're talking to, but that gives away a sense of casual connection with God. And can I just tell all of us, you can't live the kingdom's purposes with this kind of every once in a while, I kind of touch Jesus and a little spark comes and I, you know, I come to church sometimes and I, I don't know even know where my Bible is, but you know, I kind of like to listen to this guy from time to time. That, that casualness is exactly what Jesus is saying. No, not that. I'm talking about abiding. I'm talking about relating to one another and having a real life exchange in this passage. In verse 9 and 10, that there are actions of abiding and obeying that are connected to experiencing the love of God. Look in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Oh, let me apply this to me. Jesus says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments... And abide in his love. Now, can we just let Jesus be the specialist on the things that he's talking about? Because there is this weird move in our world today that wants the love of God to be accessible to us, experienced by us, treasured and prized. As a matter of fact, for some people, that's the only thing about God that they will ever mention. God is love. Yes, he is. Is that all? Is that the only thing that we know about God? That's a wonderful thing to know, and it's biblical. But there's more about God than just that. And it's, it's interesting to me that Christianity is going through this metamorphosis right now. And it's changing, and the culture is putting the pressure on the church for these changes to take place. And so there is this, this thing, just like in our world, there, all of a sudden there are political parties, and one of them is progressive, right? That word progressive is hanging around. Did you know there's progressive Christianity? There's a version of Christianity that is, is just, it's just a little bit more with it and a little bit more in the mood of things right now. Progressive Christianity loves to feature the love of God. But if you sat with Jesus and you let Jesus talk about the love of God, he would say in the same sentence, abide in me and obey me. Jesus had no problem mixing those concepts together. He saw obedience and abiding in him as a means of love being real. So there's this sense that for some of us as Christians... You know, the love of God is, it's, it's on experience. It's too distant. We're not feeling it. I don't always know that God loves me. Well, you know, have you ever thought part of the remedy? I won't say the only remedy. But part of the remedy comes from Jesus' words right here. He announces, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Did you know that? Do you know what kind of love I have for you? Well, it's the same love the Father has for me. Is that overwhelming? Is that mind-blowing? Does that consume you and go, whoa? That, wait, let me ponder that. You're saying the way the father loves you, you have loved me. Have, have you just freaked out over that or just read right past it? So let's all acknowledge to some degree, all of us have come short of experiencing whatever Jesus is talking about right there. 
Every, you with me? I'd love to say, no, no, no. Can I explain to you how I recognized God? The same way God the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves me just like that. I, I don't think I could stand up here and describe that to you. I think it would knock me to the ground. And yet Jesus recognizes, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So could there be a love for us that's available from God that is mind-blowing, soul-satisfying, and yet fairly unexperienced by us? That Jesus turns around and says, abide, dwell in, connect with, be amongst my love. And then he turns around and adds a little bit more help here. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Can I just tell you, I don't hear progressive Christianity saying anything like that. I hear what progressive Christianity is saying is, God, please be more silent and more silent and more silent and more silent to the point where we don't even know you have any commands. And then you dial up whatever makes sense inside of you, prioritize that, fall in love with it, and then invite God to love you that way. That's the world that we're living in. And we are not immune to it. There are lots and lots of Christians who will sit in services like this and hear the Bible proclaimed and preached and go, that ain't right. Something wrong with that. Something wrong with that. You know why it feels wrong? Because it doesn't start with you. But God doesn't start with you. He has a will. He issues commands. Commands are not a curse word in the Bible. Commands are not God stealing all your joy from your life by making you do stuff that's old-fashioned, outdated, not fun. According to this Jesus, he goes on in the next verse and associates abiding and obeying with joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How many of us have seriously thought if Jesus were counseling us, he would tell us his commands and our obedience to his commands are a source of joy in our lives. They're not the kill joy that we've been told they are. But it's amazing that Christianity bears the name after its founder and progressive Christianity doesn't want to hear from its founder and live a life that he says is going to be fulfilling and joyful and meaningful, right? So there is, there is some doing in the Christian life that invites us into something that's experiential and that God wants for us. And that quite honestly, all of us want as well. Sinclair Ferguson in his book on maturity says, Jesus claimed to be the true vine of God. Where Israel was a working model, Jesus was the reality itself. The gardener had grafted them into the new and true vine. Now, in Christ, they had all the resources they would need in order to bear fruit. The way to being fruitful then was by their, listen, their union with Christ. Now, that's something that you and I don't have anything to do with. By his doing, you are in Christ. Right? So, we're just, we're just sitting down in that moment. By drawing on his life. Who's doing the drawing? We are. And by experiencing the father's pruning of their lives. And who's in charge of the pruning? 
not us. Right? So there is a way of fruit bearing in our lives that calls on us to draw on the life of God. And that's what abiding was. And that's what the image of this vine and these branches were. Somehow, hey, branch, be connected to the vine in such a way that there's this living exchange. There's this flow of sap going back and forth between you and the vine. That's life-giving and life-sustaining. And by the way, Christian, that's what your life with God needs to look like. You are drawing from the life of God. All right, no, so... There are going to be specific ways in the New Testament that you and I draw from the life of God. So don't let that sit in a category where it's like, hey, that, that sounds kind of cool. I have no idea how that fits into a nine to five schedule, but maybe it doesn't. Oh, actually it does. It shows up in real activity. And when we open the New Testament, you're going to find they're drawing from the life of God right there. They're drawing from the life of God right there. Or in this way, they're drawing from the life of God. This is an exchange with the life of God right here. Look at what they're doing right there. And for simplicity's sake, although I think the, the, the number would be larger, we have boiled down maybe seven of the most prominent ways that the New Testament church drew from the life of God, abided in Christ. And those things we describe as the activity of discipleship. So that's what we're trying to get our minds around. Remember, Richard Phillips thought the third element in this parable presents believers' responsibility. We are responsible for something. And that immediately pushes us into some shaky, awkward ground, theologically and personally. Right? A number of years ago, Wayne Grudem wrote a really helpful article. Actually wrote it to honor John Piper in a book called The Fame of God's Name. But the title of the article was this, Pleasing God by Our Obedience. Wayne Grudem would be one of the theologians, I think, who has the most outstanding understanding and insights on the grace and mercy of God, who is also writing an article that says, pleasing God by our obedience. Now listen to this from his article. He says, I suspect that the main reason for the neglect of this doctrine in evangelical circles today is that pastors and teachers and writers are afraid of compromising the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's true. If we can please God by works, doesn't that sound like justification by works? No, it does not. Or else the New Testament authors would not put so much emphasis on telling Christians to please God by their obedience. Justification by faith alone does not mean that we are sanctified by faith Alone, right? Sanctification is that word for growing. It's that word for transformation in the scriptures. Because sanctification, because in, sorry, in sanctification, active obedience on our part is required. And justification by faith alone does not mean that we please God in our daily lives by faith alone. For obedience to God is also required. And justification by faith alone does not mean that our daily relationship with God depends on faith alone. For our obedience is also important. If we boldly teach that justified Christians can and should seek to please God by their obedience we will not obscure justification by faith alone. 
Zeal, this is wisdom. Zeal to protect one great biblical teaching should never cause us to neglect another great biblical teaching. In fact, if we fear to teach something that is clearly taught in the New Testament, we probably need exactly that teaching to keep us from an unbalanced and misleading emphasis on the doctrine we are zealous to protect. So when we interact with something that so diminishes our engagement with God to where it sounds as though that doesn't even matter, we are probably trying to protect something else at the expense of what the Bible is clearly teaching over on this side. And and, and I find that is true when you get into a conversation with modern teachers, uh, folks that that only want to make God one-dimensional, and they want to say, God is love. Quite honestly, I I don't know if I'm yet to hear a person who picks up the God is love thing, and he doesn't do this. This is the typical recipe. They invent their definition for what love is. They've drawn it from whatever observations, what they feel is what characterizes love, what they can find in the Bible for some support. So first, they create a concept called love. And then they make God answer to that. God is this. You ever see this happen? And so then what I preach about is not about everything answers to God, obeying God, the commands of God, everything answers to love. So whatever we're doing as a church, it's about love. And, and, and almost like that sounds like the Bible. Can I just tell you, that does not sound like the Bible. And I'm not trying to be some weirdo and say, wait, wait, wait the, the Bible says God is love. You do recognize the Bible says God is a bunch of things. And love would be amazingly, incredibly at the top of the list. But, you know, the angels around the throne can't draw breath fast enough to say God is holy, holy, holy. They don't say God is love, love, love. Although I'm sure it would be super appropriate. For some reason, the Bible doesn't record them saying that. I think you would be better off, quite honestly, starting with the word holy. Because the word holy has its own territory in and of itself. It's like its own planet. And it's like saying, hey, I don't know what you've thought about mercy and patience and love and justice. I don't know what you've thought about those categories, but there's this other planet called holy. And all those things exist on that planet, but they're a little different than whatever you've ever thought about. So there is a love on planet holy that's different than whatever you would define it as. There is a mercy on planet holy that's different what you find here. There's a justice on planet holy That's different than that. So holiness describes how God is uniquely God in all the categories of who he is. So you'd be better off starting with God is holy than you would with God is love. Because love for you and I has sentiment and likability in it and comfortableness. And you're like me. And you would never do that because that seems mean. It's got all that in us. And you and I don't get to come to God and create him in the image of whatever love is to us. We come to God and he is who he is. But in this doing category, this is my two-cent observation here. It's awkward to hear messages about doing for a number of reasons. I'm going to give you two ones that I think are prominent. 
For those who were raised under the influence of Christianity in the, in the late 70s into the 80s, there was a legitimate moment and an important moment where the grace of God was being recovered. It, it, had, it had been lost. And there was an emphasis on works, an emphasis on holiness, a pushing of emphasis back into people's lives to where... You know, your activity, your morals, your boundaries, the requirements you put on yourself, the requirements you put on others. That's what the church world felt like. And then you got messages. I remember lots of messages. There would be a message every few weeks, probably on Phariseeism. Behavior like the Pharisees, approaching God like the Pharisees, et cetera, et cetera. Just curiosity point. When was the last time you heard a message on Phariseeism? I can't tell you the last time I heard a message on Phariseeism because there was a segment, rightly so, that was trying to protect the doctrine of grace and the doctrine of justification. It was trying to protect it from being encroached upon and imposed upon by human works. And so there's a bunch of us here who are allergic to the word works for that reason. We hear works and we're immediately alarmed that you're about to pollute the doctrine of salvation. Be careful where you're going with this, Keith. Be really, really careful. I, I, you, if you say do and you say require, oh, dude, you are flirting with something really, really dangerous. That's only for those of us who were raised in the 70s and 80s to Christianity. In the 2000s, the game has changed. People who have been raised in Christianity since the turn of the century, they don't live in that category the way the rest of us do. When, you, when they hear works, they hear the idea that somebody out there is going to impose upon me their idea about how I should be doing life. And no one should be telling me as an individual how I should be doing life. So why don't you keep your opinion to yourself? Why don't you do Christianity that way if that's how you want to do it? But don't tell me how to do it. Don't tell me I need to do this and stop doing that because we have drawn our definition of ourselves from a world that's taught us to validate our own personal views. So there's some of us here who don't want works to come into the conversations because we're trying to protect salvation. There's some of us here who don't want works to be in the conversation because we don't want to feel imposed upon. Don't come at me. Don't put that on me. You do you, okay? And we're theologically applying that to something that sounds like, no, you do this. Well, you do that. I'm going to do this over here. That's not my priorities. I, you know, I read the Bible too, and that just that doesn't stick out to me. Either way, at the end of the day, it, it, I would question, does, does anybody want to just listen to Jesus? He said, if... If you do something like abide in me, and if my words abide in you, oh, what a different life you're going to experience. You're going to experience a fruitful life. You're going to pray and bring the kingdom of God to bear on this world. You're going to bear fruits. And, and listen, by the way, just like me, when I walked as a human being, I kept my father's commands. I obeyed him. There were moments, and we know these moments in Jesus' life, where obedience, the kingdom hung in the balance of whether that individual that we know as the Savior was going to obey his father. And it seemed as though if he had made different decisions, what a different world we would now live in. But he deferred his will, not my will, 
but thy will be done. To the most horrible, horrific experience anybody could ever have was on the other end of that agreement. He was coming into agreement with something that was going to be the most painful, disorienting experience any human being ever experienced. And yet he came into agreement. What does this mean for us? Well, this doing dimension in our lives, it matters, right? We, we're all sitting here. And I think if you're a Christian, we'd all agree. I want to grow as a Christian. Wouldn't you say that? I, I want to be deeper in my, my knowledge, my affection for God. I want to be changed more than I am. I want to be used more by God for his kingdom to come. I, I want to grow. All right. Well, if you sign on for, I want to grow, then the Bible starts sounding like, well, then do this and do that. Right. D.A. Carson says, John 15 is profound and compelling for other reasons. It deals with the union between Christ and his followers, a union apart from which they can bear no fruit. Whatever is involved in this intimacy between Christ and Christians, listen, it stands at the heart of spiritual vitality. What Jesus says in this description stands at the heart of spiritual vitality. If you want to be healthy, if you want to grow, the the Bible is going to sound like this. Then do this. Is it trying to tell you how to get saved? Is it in that moment? Is it trying to tell you how to get right with God in that moment? No, it is not. You are already clean. You are already in Christ. So we don't have to wonder whether my doing is going to create that. No, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The one who's going to go on and have a career where he says, I abided in the father's love by obeying his commands. Yet he was totally pleased with Jesus. Well, that's true for the kingdom as well. Let me introduce you to a tone so you'll see this in scripture. Right? I'm going to fly through a couple of verses here. I just want you to see the Bible doesn't have an awkwardness in talking about the activity of God and then turning around talking about my activity and your activity. It doesn't apologize for it. It doesn't warm up to it. It doesn't, it doesn't go to the lengths I'm going to right now to make sure that we don't pollute this topic. It just says it like it's totally okay to do that. Right? I'll race you through a couple of thoughts. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 1 through 3 feels a certain way. When you get to Ephesians chapter 4, the tone starts to change and it features activity amongst God's people. Ephesians 4 verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So, so you now are, have just been given responsibility. You can walk or you can not walk, but the Bible just did tell you to walk. And then it told you how to walk. So you can walk this way or you can walk a different way. But it is a choice you make. And the Bible actually is pointing out that choice makes a difference. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And you skip down a few verses in Ephesians 4, verse 17. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. No longer. You must no longer. You, you don't be like that anymore. Every, every person in this room who has had an encounter with Jesus should have, should have in their life a used to file. 
Do you have a used to file? I used to, and we probably don't want to discuss some of this openly. I used to, and I used to, and I used to. Can I just tell you, if you don't have a used to file, I don't think you can in any way be certain you've met Jesus. Because you prove to be his disciples by being transformed by him. You create a used to file. I used to think this way. I used to hate these kinds of people. I used to never want to do this. I I used to have problems in this area. I used to, I used to, I used to. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're on your way, right? You're growing and you're changing. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Verse 24, you are to put on the new self, right? So this is transformation. We're putting on something. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood. So now there's things I stopped doing. I'm no longer doing that. That used to be a part of my life. It's not anymore. I've chosen to say no to that. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Maybe you didn't do that before, but you do it now. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Who's being told do not? God, the Holy Spirit. This is not instruction for God. It's instruction for us. Don't do that anymore. Give no opportunity to the devil. There, there are things apparently that you and I can make a decision about activity in our lives that give opportunity to this spiritual being in this world that we are walking around with. Whether that opportunity is in my own life, in the lives of those around me, that can happen. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, right? Stop doing this, start doing that. All right, verse 29, let... No corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Who are these instructions to? They're to you and me. They're telling us to do some things and not do some things. These are activities through which we are going to draw on the life of God. We are going to obey him in a way that allows the love of God to abide in our experience and be a transformational power. If I choose to blow all these off because I've got reasons why not to do these, whether they're bad theology that I don't think the Bible's commands apply to Christians anymore. That's bad theology because God wants you to grow and Jesus obeyed commands. So commands absolutely apply to our lives. They just don't save you. That doesn't mean we tear them out of the Bible. So there's a purpose in God in these activities that we're doing, but that's not where Ephesians started. And that's not where our vine illustration started either. I am the vine. It started with the vine. I am something so that you can be something. What I am, you are dependent upon. You can't do any of this without me. So Ephesians starts this way. Let's read it quickly just so you can get a tone for it. You do see, when you, by the time you get to Ephesians 4, we're shifting gears, and a lot of sound is going to be, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. Right? Ephesians 1, though, starts this way. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, right? That's a passive description. He has blessed us. I didn't create the blessing. I didn't stand in line for a long time and make it happen. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, everyone. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's pretty big, right? Because that means before you ever did anything, God had already chosen. And Jesus said the same thing. You didn't choose me, 
but I chose you and I appointed you. I gave you a purpose that you would bear my life through you and bear fruit. Same thing here. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before God. What is it that makes us holy and blameless? If we do the stuff in the later part of Ephesians, no, we're told from the beginning by something Jesus did, we are made holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, right? Listen, so long, we're just sitting in the bleachers right now. We're just reading about all the things God did and who God is to us as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him. Again, not our doing. By his doing, we are in him. By his choosing, we are in him. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So how about that? The Bible that turns around and tells you to do things that you and I can fail at, which is what we don't like about being told what to do, tells us we already have forgiveness in him. We don't create forgiveness. We're not going to be doing in order to achieve forgiveness. We have forgiveness in him according to the riches of his grace, not our deserving, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan from the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. We already have it. See, so the Bible doesn't have any problem with saying what an amazing treasure you already have based on who Christ is and what he's done for you. Stare at that. And then it doesn't even pause to turn around and say, okay, now do this and do that. And don't do that anymore. You used to do that. Put that in the used to file. Stop doing that. Start doing this. The Bible doesn't mind telling us those things. Right? I won't unpack this. It's in your outline. But if you, if you look at the construction of Romans, you're going to get the same exact thing. You're going to get God interacting with human depravity, the, the, the desperateness of man, the inability of man to save himself. God comes, brings a gift of righteousness, gives it to man, gives him a new identity and a new life in the spirit, explains to man that this is his sovereign doing. You are in this kingdom because of God's sovereign choice. Before any of you decided to do right or wrong, I had already determined what your life was going to be. And then we get to chapter 12. And the language sounds just like Ephesians 4. So therefore, as a result of all that being true, present yourselves to God. Listen, this is the same exact thing Jesus is saying. Whether it's walk, put off and put on, or present yourselves, those are all abiding things in Jesus through which we draw the life of God into the branch and live in its goodness. So before we explore some of these, which we will in a couple of weeks, we, we kind of need to settle this issue theologically. We know what our aim is. What is our activity as Christians? What, what are we doing as a church? Lakeview Christian Center, what are you doing here? Well, we are glorifying God, ultimately, through lives that are being transformed by his living presence and the fruit of his life is being born in our lives. We're growing. Great. What are you doing 
for that to take place? Well, we're doing some things we see in the New Testament. We'll stand those up in the future. But we are actually doing some things. And it may be that in our world today, that's gotten short-circuited. And we might need to re-embrace our doing of things in order to welcome a greater and deeper work of God in our lives so that we would grow. We all agreed in the beginning we want to grow. I know we do. But abiding and obeying are critical parts of growing. So let's stand together and pray. Just let you just just be still, as we sang about earlier. Be still. Holy Spirit is is personal. He's he knows where you are. He knows how life is right now. He knows where you're struggling. He knows the next step that will take you from one degree of glory to another. Let me ask you this question. I think we all need to interact with. Do I want to grow? Do I really want to grow? Can you and God just settle that right now? Can you answer that to God? Can you honestly tell God, I, I really, Lord, I really do want to grow. I want to experience deeper freedom and transformation in my life. Lord, I want that. Tell God that. Lord, I I want to experience your life, your love, your power, your values, the things that Thrill you, Lord, I want to grow in those places in my life, Lord. If, if nothing else, I just want to tell you, Lord, I want to grow in these areas. Lord, what Keith said earlier, I, I know you love me, but sometimes I just don't feel your love. How are you doing then with abiding and obeying God? How's that going? What moment of transition might God be bringing into your life right now, this morning? By awakening in you a sense of that word abiding, it is not a casual word. It is not a word that describes an every once in a while engagement. It is not describing something that is frequently neglected. It is a dwelling. It is an engagement and an exchange and a constancy and a remaining. Maybe that God this morning wants to awaken a sense of the pathway into greater abiding is through your obedience. 
And this can be very personal. You could be here this morning and there's something that the Holy Spirit's been nagging you about. And you have treated his commands casually. He has been speaking to you. He may be calling you to stop something. I had a sense to pray for some men this morning. It's whether God has been telling you to stop all the gaming. Your soul needs an abiding in Christ and you are so preoccupied with gaming. Has God been telling you to stop? I don't know to what degree, but to stop. Is that a command of God? Are you feeling distant from God and just not experiencing God? Listen, there's going to be a temptation or a suffering that comes into your life at some point. And the distance from God is not going to serve you in that moment. You are going to be upside down in that moment because God's love is too far away from you. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. You're going to need to know the love of Jesus in your life in some serious moments. And his commands have been stop. Stop the pornography. Stop it. Listen, you you can show up at a church small group. You can come to church today. But if you will not obey him, you will struggle to abide and experience his love. So you're here this morning, God's saying, stop. Stop something that's going on in your life. There's some here that need to stop with the angry, critical spirit that you cooperate with. Your life has just got way too much anger in it. Be angry. Do not sin. Yeah, you're going to have emotions. But that criticalness, that attacking posture, there's a command from God. He's saying, stop. Be humble. Be patient, be kind, be loving, smell different. Stop what you're doing. There's some here who need to obey by starting something in your life. God's been calling you to do something. He's been calling you to be around him. He's been calling you to be in his word with him. Been calling you to prayer and intimacy with him. For whatever reason, life isn't creating any space for that. And God is saying, obey, just obey me. Whatever it is you got to do, draw near to me. Make that something that matters in your soul. If some of you just have deprioritized the kingdom in such a way that your finances are not a part of the kingdom of God. You don't give to the kingdom of God in a way that God has been calling you to give. And he's nudged you. He's spoken to you. And you're just not doing it. Listen, there's fruit on the other side of obedience. There's the working of God on the other side of our obedience. He has mingled our trusting him Obeying God's commands is a matter of trust. Do I trust him? 
Father, thank you for the hope that we have that the God of the universe would be at work in our lives for his glory to radiate from us. No matter what our fallen story is, no matter how beat up we have been in this world, no matter what failures are described in our lives, the God of glory chose us from the foundations of the world to express his life and to bear fruit and to prove that he actually did choose us and that he's actually at work in our lives. Lord, we want to grow. Lord, we want to grow. I want to grow, Lord. I want to be different tomorrow than I am today. I want, I want to be a different man a year from now than I am right now. Lord, I want to see things that would capture my heart and blow my mind and stir my affections a month from now greater than what I've experienced so far. God, we just want to go from one degree of glory to another, from one place of strength to another. So God, would you help us to not throw away wonderful words like abiding and obeying as we seek to be your disciples. God, would you awaken this room to hearts that are eager to obey? We're eager to obey, God. Just like you, Lord Jesus, were eager to obey the Father. Father, we want to grow. We want our church to grow. And I don't mean numbers by that. We want to grow in the fruit that we bear that tells everybody who looks on God's glory is in that place and in those lives. That's how we want to grow, Lord. You take care of the numbers. In Jesus' name. Hey, if you guys are here, I touched a few areas that, that maybe you're struggling in. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you about. Maybe you're confused about something. Just somebody who's given a brief word of encouragement would help you this morning. Maybe there's a step of faith that you need to take, an area of obedience. You just need God to just show up with some great power to meet you in. Don't leave without getting some prayer. Some folks just engaging you in faith together. And guys who have walked in their own sets of struggles and their own activity of obedience can come alongside you. And God could use them to say something to you this morning that sends you into this week with power for God's glory to be seen. All right. Love you guys. Love you guys who are not with us, but you're with us. Look forward to seeing you soon. Look forward to seeing you guys next week.